You are listening to the Heavenly Chi podcast, episode number 11. Today we're talking about the spleen and the pancreas. I'm Claire Pyers and I'm Fee Gitchum. Today we're talking about the spleen and the pancreas. The body contains some structures beyond the 12 zong fu and when it comes to the pancreas we can associate many of its functions with the realm of the spleen. Today we're going to open up this topic by discussing various aspects of pancreatic function from a TCM point of view. The Heavenly Chi podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Chi Podcast to your favourite RSS feed or iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. We hope you enjoy today's show. So today we're talking about the spleen and the pancreas and... There's a few different things that we wanted to talk about today and some of them are related to each other and some of them aren't, so we'll just kind of go through them as they come up. Um, There are some ideas around how the pancreas um, is responsible for many of the functions that in TCM are ascribed to spleen function. Um, And then there's also the ideas around the spleen and how there are many functions that are ascribed to the spleen that, um, that are in fact related more to the way that the large intestine works and, and obviously the pancreas as well and to a certain extent the, the kidneys and the liver. And so we're going to talk about all of those things today just as they, as they come up. Um, so Fee and I have had a little bit of a, um, a brainstorm about this and, you know, we've come full circle I think in terms of you know, we've been in practice now, this is our 11th year in practice, and so there's, you know, there's lots of things that we've learned along the way, and we've certainly added to the knowledge that we that we um, gained when we were at school. Um, but there's still a lot of things that we feel like we don't know. You know, as 11 years in, that we still feel like we're, you know, that we have a, a learning curve ahead of us, and I thought that would be really nice to acknowledge that for our listeners because we certainly don't want to come across as feeling, you know, as for you guys getting a sense that we think we know it all because we certainly don't. Um, And I thought that would be a nice starting point to acknowledge that. Um, This is just our discussion and musings, I guess, on these ideas. So, um, Fee, why um, why don't you talk a little bit about the pancreas? and what the pancreas does from your point of view. Sure. So when we learn about the spleen network in school, um, I definitely learned that the pancreas is part of that network and find that that is the most common place I've seen it ascribed to. And when it comes to understanding spleen function and understanding how we're going to treat particular spleen issues, for example, spleen young deficiency, uh, when you've got TNT problems, the food's not breaking down or being transported properly. Um, things that we that I've learned along the way about the pancreas and nutrition and Shirley Liao 
and other approaches that have become really useful for me in terms of understanding when I'm identifying that the spleen young is not working so well because of the pancreas or whether or not that's not where I need to look. So um, I will start with a, my story here then, <clears throat> which is um, studying and had the classic diagnosis of I'm spleen young deficient and uh, of course finding out in first pretty much the first week of school that studying will deplete my spleen even more. <laughs> However, it will also give me the information I need to learn how to nourish it and restore it and take care of it and cultivate it for my life if it's as a constitutional factor. So for many, many years I was advised to make sure I had all these warm foods and cooked soups and lived for quite a long time making sure I really cooked and steamed a lot of things and had a lot of soups and about 10 years later I could say that with the assistance of acupuncture and Chinese herbs that my spleen young was doing a fair bit better but it still seemed to be that I hadn't managed to resolve it as much as I'd hoped or as much as I believed was possible and through discussion with my martial arts teacher who was also very knowledgeable about Chinese medicine but very involved in healing the body through eating raw foods I was continually advised by this teacher to eat some raw foods to help restore my spleen and this became a very interesting conversation because this is usually not the line of thinking that we're presented with when we're looking at nourishing spleen young through the diet However, eventually I did try a raw food diet and first of all I want to make sure the context is clear. I was living in a tropical, subtropical region and I first tried the diet during a summer and I was very careful not to eat a lot of cold foods even though they were raw. And I found within three months of eating a raw food diet that my spleen young and my mild but persistent damp and my chronic blood deficiency relating to my spleen deficiency constitution, all these things repaired themselves radically beyond anything else I'd experienced within three months of eating raw foods. And so I had to reassess my understanding of the spleen young and spleen chi deficiency and working with this with diet, and I knew there was more to look at in terms of the role of the pancreas. And this is because the essential factor with the raw foods that I was eating that allowed me to heal was their live enzyme value. So for those that don't know, when you cook or heat foods, you destroy the enzymes. And you may think this is okay because you eat them and your pancreas is going to provide those enzymes to your body to help the food be digested. However, your body has to produce a lot of enzymes and with certain deficiencies or depletions your body may not have the energy left over to focus on your digestive enzymes or to keep them replenished. Um, you have far more important enzymes for your body to focus on producing like your heart enzymes and liver enzymes. So you can end up with this kind of sluggish digestion 
um, or difficulty in breaking down foods or lots of hypersensitivities that show up as symptoms to do with troubles breaking down the food and absorbing it and the whole process of TNT is really just not happening very well. Uh, so when, what I learned from this was that by eating more foods that contained live enzymes, I was providing my body with food that was more able to digest itself without drawing so much chi from my spleen network, in particular from the pancreas aspect of the spleen network. And so this led me on a little journey of my abilities to identify when raw food would actually help someone to nourish their spleen. Mm, and that's so controversial. And and I know that um, for many years that was one of my biggest beefs with naturopaths and that if I've got patients who are seeing me and they're also seeing a naturopath and, you know, they've got spleen spleen chi deficiency or spleen yang deficiency and I've suggested to them, oh, you should have, you know, lots of cooked foods and the naturopath is saying you need to have all the raw foods and, you know, the patient's left is feeling like they're the meat and the sandwich in this lifelong argument between the naturopaths and the Chinese men. Um, and so that was definitely something that I found really interesting because um, I remember you wrote an article on this a few years ago yeah. and um, having studied together and um, it's only been in the last year or two that we've worked together but I definitely held a lot of, um, you know, held you in high esteem for, um, you know, I knew that you weren't just coming up with silly ideas and making stuff up and I thought, wow, this, she's actually had this really great experience and so that certainly opened up my my mind to the possibilities of what what can be achieved with a raw food diet for someone who has a weak spleen from a Chinese medicine point of view. Yeah, and I just want to make it clear that I would never advocate a, a same protocol for everybody or to also stick with eating raw foods. So I don't eat all raw foods at this stage, but the initial three months of eating, I did eat 100% raw foods that really healed a lot of things and I'm happy to say that it's now about four years later and all those things are still doing better. Um, but now I'm aware through my experience of adjusting that scale. So I would say I never really eat more than about 70 to 80% raw foods now and that would be in summer. And then the other foods that I'm eating, I'm able to experience my spleen chi and identify whether or not I need to be nourishing it through warming foods, through soups or through eating live foods and, and replenishing that enzyme factor um, and all the other combinations of ways in which we can nourish the spleen with diet. And I think that's an important point too that, you know, making the distinction between um, the nature of of a particular food that, you know, the thermal properties of warming or cooling are still really important to take into account outside of the, um, the food preparation technique that, um, you know, a raw food diet of cucumbers and watermelons versus a raw food diet that contains ginger and, um, and spices and sort of more warming 
yeah. or foods that are considered to be warming. And definitely for me, it was really just a matter of really making soups and using gingers and things like that to keep the thermal nature appropriate for my body because I also am a bit of a coldie. So I did not want to put cold into my body. Um, and, and just understanding that when we are working with the thermal natures of foods, we can really change their value. And it's not about just eating a cold piece of lettuce from the fridge. Yeah. You know, yeah. you can, and I think one of the things, I mean, if we look at TMT and we look at modern kitchen appliances, a blender, does the first part it will it will break everything down and micronize it and that's what we're looking for in a soup or in a congee is that half of digestion has already been done and you're providing your body with a micronized form of food which makes it easier to turn into the gucci uh, if the body's deficient and it's going to have trouble doing the whole job on its own i think there's something um that's worth mentioning as well is that even in um, our herbal medicine history, not all of the herbs were designed to be cooked as decoction. You know, there's a lot of um, a lot of formulas that were designed to be prepared as a san, so ground into a powder and then mixing that with water. And so there's less cooking and less um, and more enzymes are intact with those mm. with those herbal preparations. And even um, you know, like one of the best formulas for um, you know, for problems with the spleen and the middle jowl is um, lijongwan. And that's a, you know, it's a powdered raw herb that's then combined with honey. And so none of those, um, none of those wan formulas are cooked and a lot of the nourishing formulas are prepared as wans. So even though the idea of spleen, um, you know, spleen young deficiency requiring cooked foods has been part of the, um, you know, part of what's been passed down through the years in Chinese medicine. I think within the practice of herbal medicine, at least, it, even if it's not specifically stated as such, there is an acknowledgement that that raw foods and a lack of cooking, and that deliberately not cooking things, has well, a it has a different effect, and b it does have the um, potential to be very very nourishing for the body. Yeah, I would say if I had to sum up the biggest thing that I learned from it, it was to learn not to do unnecessary cooking or heating of foods and to be really selective about that. And we, I mean, there's a lot to do with preparation and back to the Lijon one. I mean, we do, we do administer it by breaking it down and steeping it in hot water until it's cooled down just enough to drink. Um, you know, so also I would consider a large part of that raw food approach does include having herbal teas and the element of steeping items in hot water that will have medicinal effect that's released that way. Mm. And when we look at greens, for example, if you compare what are you going to get from your spinach if you steam it versus if you have it raw, well, you'll get slightly different things. And so you it's helpful to know that because then you can apply them differently. If I need my iron from my spinach, I'm better off steaming it because it becomes more bioavailable that way. Um, but if I just want to increase the amount of greens in my diet and use raw leafy greens because they make your skin look amazing and they give you all this incredible vitality and energy. Moves your liver chi. <laughs> moves your liver chi. I can put a handful of uh, spinach into a, a smoothie or make a 
a raw soup, for example, by blending up spinach and ginger and all these, maybe broccoli or whatever I want to have into a soup by using a blender without necessarily having to heat it over a certain temperature. And I think one of the reasons why it is helpful is because for our body to do anything with the water we drink or the food we eat, it needs to bring it to the body's temperature. Mm. So even if you cook your food, you can't eat it at sizzling temperature without burning your tongue and by the time your stomach gets to digest it, it's at the same temperature that you are at. Mm. Yeah, so a raw food diet doesn't mean you're eating something that's no. straight out of the fridge. Like it's often hotter than room temperature. Right, well, and so preserve enzymes, you can heat things up to about 47 degrees Celsius. So that is still warmer than the body. So you can still gently warm things or even just become aware of, you know, it's not as if when you get to 48 degrees Celsius all the enzymes are gone. There's actually a time frame. So within 10 minutes of steaming something, you will have lost a certain percentage of the enzyme factor. Hmm. And so it's really about that awareness of learning to not do any unnecessary cooking or overcooking of foods and to make sure that your diet has a balance that's suitable for you or for your patients of all of these factors and not being afraid of the raw foods and not assuming they're all cold. Mm. Yeah, one of the things um, that we were discussing just before we were recording the episode today was um, the, the medical diagnosis of gastroparesis and how a lot of those patients, once they're diagnosed with that condition, are instructed or advised to have a diet that is you know that contains all cooked foods because it's you know easier for the for the digestive system to process it and can it just helps to avoid the slowing down of the the minimal peristalsis that's going on and yeah and we were talking about that the similarities between um, the food therapy well the, the nutritional advice from for the medical diagnosis of gastroparesis and the idea of spleen deficiency and cooked foods. Um, but then, yeah, Fee, you were also just mentioning that, um, you know, what you were saying about the physical processing of foods using a blender, for example, is mm. um, is taking some of that, um, is, is playing some of that role anyway. Right, yeah, and we have to, you know, respect the idea that for the for the ancient Chinese or anybody pre-blender era, <laughs> um, the only way really to micronize your foods like that would be to use something like a mortar and pestle or to turn it into a soup. So if you want a soup that also has the additional benefit of the live enzymes, um, then you just you can make a soup using these modern implements, using a blender, and, we, and you can also avoid unnecessary heating and destruction of the enzymes. And sometimes that's a really, really beneficial treatment protocol from a nutritional perspective. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, that idea of having just very short processing times, or, you know, very short steaming times, you know, mm. herbs like Dole Hurt, for example, you mm. add it in the last five minutes mm. of, of the boil when you're decocting your herbs. Right. Um, and you know, I've heard I've heard some practitioners talk about the idea of um, you know decocting a formula for a shorter period of time to have more effect in the upper jaw versus 
decocting for a longer time to have more of an effect on the lower jaw. So, um, yeah, I think there, there is some kind of an appreciation for, um, yeah, those cooking times and how it changes um, the nature of, of the foods or of the substances that you're cooking. And I guess, yeah, we're looking at things like vitamin C and vitamin B content and some of the, some of the phytochemicals that are heat sensitive, that are preserved in certain ways or, you know, or they're changed and altered by the cooking process. It makes me wonder about how much, I mean, getting back to that idea of gastroparesis and spleen deficiency and, you know, how much of this spleen stuff you know, we talk about, oh, you know, that, that person's got spleen chi deficient diarrhea, or they go, oh, spleen chi deficient constipation, um, or, you know, there's a problem if they get bloating after eating, oh, that's their spleen chi. Like, how much of this, like, we've just totally over engineered the concept of the spleen, and it just incorporates everything to do with digestion. Anything that could possibly go wrong, it's the spleen. It's the problem with your spleen, you're thinking too much. Um, you know, eat all cooked foods and it kind of solves all the problems. I wonder, um, like the large intestine, you know, they talk a lot about this in the world of naturopathy and doing colonic irrigation and enemas and um, keep even if the you colon clean. Keep the colon clean. It's the secret to longevity. And yeah. Good health. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> We don't really talk about that in Chinese medicine. I know that in Bob Floor's book that he wrote in the late 80s, Scatology and the Gate of Life, he makes reference to the idea of that the spleen kind of cops the blame for a lot of the stuff to do with the large intestine. We're not really looking closely at the metal element and what's the role in the metal element in supporting digestion. And I guess even the fire element and the small intestine and that, um, and that aspect of digestion as well, it's the, the foundation for those ideas are in the classics, but then in practice it kind of gets left behind. And I'm, and I'm sure there are listeners out there going, me, me, I, I, I pay attention to the small intestine and the large intestine. Like, we want to hear from you. We want to hear how you're doing this in clinic because I think it's something that unless you're directed to do it in a particular way, I think the default is to just kind of go spleen for a lot of things. Mm. I mean, it's understandable to say, well, it comes back to the spleen if you're talking about the large intestine because the earth is the mother of the metal. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then the fire is the mother of the earth. And then we have then the, the small intestine. And, and this is where all these enzymes come into play as well. Yeah, well, the pancreas dumps the enzymes straight into the small intestine, mm. and that's where a lot of the pancreatic um, actions occur. Mm. And we were just looking at some anatomy pictures of, of the pancreas, and uh, it, it pretty much connects the liver to the spleen. You know, it will just run across the, the sides there. You've got your liver on your right side and your spleen on the left. And the pancreas uh, pretty much runs six inches along to join them. And so I see a lot of connections there as well with the whole patterns of wood invading earth. Mm. Well, and also there's um, the pancreas, like the pancreas uses the common bile duct to... Um, 
We're <laughs> laughing at pancreas. Pancreas. <laughs> pancreas. We made an ass joke. Um, yes. Yeah, and that the you know the bile coming from the gallbladder, um, you know, joins up through the same through the same duct as the pancreatic enzymes. Mm. And um, I know that one of the other practitioners that works here in in our clinic just a few weeks ago had a patient coming in with a um, with a diagnosis of um, uncontrolled blood sugar and there was a question mark over whether or not she'd be diagnosed with diabetes. And um, there was some, yeah, this, this practitioner was, uh, was inclined to give the patient a gallbladder flush, instructed her to, you know, follow a food and eating protocol and do the gallbladder flush. And within a matter of a day or two after doing the gallbladder flush, there's a lot that came out and then her blood sugar restored to normal. And so, you know, there's a question there on, you know, was the blockage from the gallbladder affecting the way that the pancreas was working? And that that's kind of like, you know, you can draw those, um, you can draw those parallels with wood invading earth. Yeah. Yeah. So for those of you who may not remember your pancreas anatomy, the um, the pancreas plays a role in stimulating the stomach acids via its connection to the gallbladder mm. there. Yeah. Yeah. And so while we're talking about diabetes, often diabetes will come up as a kidney yin diagnosis. Um, I definitely see a spleen young type of diabetes as well, very commonly. Probably more so the type 2 as the spleen type of diabetes. Um, but there was something that you wanted to say, Claire, about the pancreas in terms of diabetes? Yeah, well, I think in, insulin. Yeah, in terms of the type 1 diabetes, which is generally um, involved with destruction of the pancreas itself, um, often often, not always, but it's associated with an autoimmune process and it does have an early, tends to have an earlier onset. Um, I guess they used to talk about, you know, juvenile diabetes versus late onset diabetes. You know, there's lots of different ways that people are describing it now because the old rules of, you know, you get a, you get type 2 when you're older and you're born with type 1. There's a, you know, there's a lot of exceptions that are occurring with that, but um, I think, you know, the destruction of the pancreas and the idea of atrophy of, of, the, of the pancreas itself and the inability to secrete the enzymes, you know, is that, and I guess I'm just throwing this out as a question, I'm still trying to decide for myself what I think about this idea, um, but, you know, does that fall under the idea of spleen yin? You know, and the, mm. we don't really talk about spleen yin. Um, but, you know, spleen yin and the function that that plays in being able to um, support the spleen yin, being able to support stomach, being able to, to digest and, the, and the, the yin supporting the yang of stomach. Like there's so many ways that you can look at the nuances of the interplay between, well, we haven't even talked about the stomach, I'm just throwing the stomach in there. But... Um, mm. There's, I think there's a lot of um, really, you know, when you talk about, oh, yeah, spleen is pancreas and pancreas is spleen, like you really, there's so many of the finer details that get lost. And, yeah, when you're, talking, when you're looking at diabetes, we're looking at 
okay, well, there's something wrong with the blood sugar and we know that that's an issue with the pancreas. But very clear examples that it doesn't always mean spleen. You, mm. you can get like a middle jowl, more of a middle jowl pattern, more of a lower jowl pattern. Mm. And ultimately it affects the kidneys anyway. Yeah, well, I think we can say because the earth element really nourishes the four corners. Mm. So we can always bring anything back to seeing that it's not being mothered in that way yeah. in the body and then particularly with the pancreas that we do know its mum is the spleen. Mm. But I would say maybe its dad is the liver or... <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not fair. Um, but, yeah, there's other ways that we can we can look at these functions and work with our TCM diagnosis and improve our results a little when we're dealing with patients who also are dealing with the, the Western language of what's going on in their health. Mm. I think um, it's definitely something that, um, that comes up quite a lot nowadays and I think a lot of it's to do with diet but some of it's also coming from our exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals and so forth is just the increase in insulin resistance, so that type 2 diabetes and the pre-type 2 diabetes, which is, you know, metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance, and the idea that the spleen is in charge of getting the getting sugar or getting glucose from the bloodstream into, into the cells and that that's one aspect of the of the TNT function that gets it gets overwhelmed like that that dampness blocks the ability for uh, for chi to get into the cells and that peripheral insulin resistance is that dampness mm. that's blocking there's just an overwhelming of the sweet flavor in the body there's just sweet everywhere <laughs> and um, and that impairs the earth element from being able to function properly and you know we see that a lot affecting you know gynecology cases with polycystic ovarian syndrome and certainly you know sugar can play a role in the um, pathophysiology of endometriosis as well mm. um, I think in a lot of things if you want to improve anybody's health and you can get them to remove cane sugar oh totally you'll get a lot of great results and people having problems with fruit and vegetable sugars can often also be relieved of those problems once you remove the bad sugars. Mm, yeah, well, fructose malabsorption um, is, you know, it's really common. It feels like it's becoming more common. I think there's a lot more awareness around it now. Mm. But a lot of people, yeah, they can't do a lot of those fruits. Mm. And some of them can be really useful in the diet. But, yeah, you need the gut to be right. You need that middle jowl, that spleen to be right before you can get them back on onto those foods yeah and that can take some time well I think that's about all that we've got time to talk about today we could be talking about this all day we'd love to hear from you we know that there's some um, very knowledgeable listeners out there who are just busting to tell us what they think about this topic and um, we'd love for you to do that on our Facebook page and to just add to the comments on this episode on your thoughts and ideas, your gems, your treatment protocols, what are the things that are working for you in clinic. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, and if there are any other 
of the body structures that aren't part of the top 12s on food that you would like to discuss or talk about or perhaps that you're an expert on, let us know as well because we may gradually over the course of the podcast get onto those too. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye.